and welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 677. I am your host, Jim McDowell. With me tonight to cover the Grand Prix from Valencia is Mr. Jewitt. Rich, how's it going over in the UK? Evening, Jim. Yeah, busy few weeks for us. We've been doing lots of podding. But, yes, we uh, have. Great, great, great three races uh, to talk about in Valencia last weekend. So, yeah, looking forward to getting into it. Yep, it is definitely... Good racing, um, controversy, emotion, um, heartache, I think, a little bit. It's sort of like you couldn't write a Hollywood script for this to be any better than what we had, I don't think. Uh, Some things, I think, are in the stars, and they just align sometimes, and I think that's kind of sort of what happened a little bit for us, so... That's, you know, but we'll, we'll get on to all this good stuff here in the show. But, hey, you guys like the show. Um, if you could help us out, we'd appreciate it. There are links on our webpage for both Patreon and PayPal. That is go to www.motopodcast.com. They're on the left-hand side. You can donate as little as $2. Every little bit helps. It keeps the show going, keeps the lights on, keeps us having server space, and it also prevents us from being ad-free. I don't think anybody wants to hear us rambling on about commercials or anything in between me and Rich babbling on. So <laughs> if you can help, we'd greatly appreciate it. I think we should just get on to the show, right, Rich? The news, the little bit of news came out of here. Yeah, yep. We learned that Bezecchi is confirmed alongside Marini at the Sky VR46 MotoGP team. Um, I don't think that was any big surprise. I think we knew that was coming. Worst kept secret in MotoGP, I think. Oh, yeah. I think you're right about that one. Uh, Let's see. Then Antonelli will move up to Moto2 alongside uh, Celestino Vietti in the VR46 uh, Moto2 team. Uh, that one, um, not surprising that Antonelli was moving up. It just it seems like, again, why did it take so long to announce that that was what, what was going to happen? It just uh, seems to be a little off uh, of the norm, the beaten path, as, as it were. So, but you know, yeah, it's, it's kind of long overdue, really, for Antonelli. I mean, he's been a yeah. almost permanent fixture in Moto3, hasn't he? So mm. it, I guess he was at the stage where if he didn't go now, he was going to start bumping into the age limit problem. What is the age limit? Because good grief, McPhee's like 28. And... I, yeah, and I think McPhee has one more year in Moto3, and then he has to go somewhere else or, or move up to Moto2. I'm, I'm pretty I think it's 27 or 28 years old. I mean, we need to double check on that. But Antonelli must be starting to brush pretty close to that because i mean he's a little bit like fanati who also moves up next year he's been in well i mean fanati goes back to 125 and i'm guessing antonelli might just about do that as well because i'm pretty sure that they were in the kind of national italian squad in 125 probably around about well we'd need to go back and check dates but anyway they've been in the series an awfully long time so it, it seems like a, a good move for Antonelli, and uh, I think he deserves it. I mean, he's not won the championship, but he's been a, a strong performer, inconsistent, it's true, but I think he, he deserves a shot in Moto2, so it'll be good to see what he can do next year. I can't blame I can't blame you for anything you said there. Uh, like, again, we need to look at that age limit, because I thought Skyler and I had this conversation once before about age limit, and I thought somehow it got taken away, but I could be completely off my rocker on that one been a long day so we'll we'll shelve that we'll figure it out i think it's still there there was a rider i'm just really trying to this is again we need harry (laughs) to (laughs) to come in and do the old encyclopedia thing but there was a rider who 
seven seasons ago, he kind of hit that age limit and he didn't get to move up. And then he kind of just disappeared from trace. Well, I, I will make a point of looking him up. And then the next time we're podding, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have a little talk about where he went. We can do um, that. What was his name? Anyway, we'll, we'll come back to that. I think this is a really cool thing for uh, Australian motorcycle fans. Miller is going to ride a Penagali World Super or Penagali Superbike in the Australian Superbike final that happens, I think, the 3rd through the 5th of December. Um, I forget the track that it was at, but I think that's pretty cool. I mean, it's been a couple years since basically the Australians have got a chance to see MotoGP bikes and see their uh, essentially their hero, I would think, you know, given that Miller is uh, riding at the top level winning races and whatnot to go back and ride on a Penagali. good on Ducati for letting him do it because you know anything can happen in those races but it'd be I'm I'm very curious because now since I've got that that motorsport tv app I want to find Tracy World Australian Superbike is in there somewhere because I want to see where Miller stacks up to everybody else just out of pure curiosity I think it's a really, really cool thing and very unusual in this day and age, isn't it? I mean, yeah. back, back in the olden days, certainly with car races, they would jump around from series to series basically because they had to earn, earn the coin to, to, you know, to continue. So it, it's a little bit unusual these days to see people jumping around. So I, I, this, I think this news broke kind of yesterday or today even. So I don't really know quite what's behind the rationale for doing it, other than the fact that obviously Jack Miller loves to race. And given that there hasn't been any MotoGP in Australia for a couple of seasons now because yeah, of COVID, I suppose yep. it's an opportunity for him to get in front of the home fans. So yeah, fair, good on him. That's what I say. I love it. So uh, don't forget, folks, the World Superbike Championship decider is in Indonesia this weekend. It's between Toprak and Johnny Ray. Johnny Ray, yeah, thirty-point difference with three races to go. So there's still quite a lot of points up for grabs, and it's going to be tense. It's, it's very similar i suppose to what we saw last weekend in valencia with gardner and uh raul fernandez it's you know there's a bit of a points gap but it won't take much to tip the balance so it's going to be pretty tense and going back to what we discussed at the end of last episode would you rather be top rack with a 30 point lead or, or johnny ray who's you know arguably got less to lose and everything to gain just by sort of trying to hunt him down and chase chase him down so plus we get to see this new track in indonesia where MotoGP will go early part of next season. So that's the first time we're going to get sight of the new track, uh, the Mandalika circuit. Yes. So my question to you, Rich, is am I Johnny Ray or am I Top Rack for that question? Are you asking me? Who I'd no, yeah, yeah, I'm asking you. If you're going to ask me, like, which, because you asked me whether I would be Remy or be <laughs> yeah, Adrian. Yeah. It's like, put okay, your, your so, <laughs> so which one do you want me to be? Do you want me to be Top Rack or do you want me to be Johnny Ray? I think it's easier to chase simply because you know he's behind so if he doesn't win it you know he, top rack kind of has more to lose in a little way but however having said all of that i do believe unless something weird happens and of course in indonesia you never know what the weather's going to do because uh, the weather can be pretty gnarly there um ordinarily let alone if something a little bit strange happens with uh, the weather so it's, it's a little bit hard to know on that score but um yeah, I think Toprak is one of these riders that appears to be always out of control, but he's in control. So he can that boy can ride completely on the edge. He has otherworldly talents, which is why it's such a travesty, really, as far as I'm concerned, that he's not making the jump to MotoGP next year. And seemingly is committed to World Superbike for at least another couple of years from what I've seen. So that's a little bit hard to understand. But anyway, 
let's see what happens this weekend. Perhaps we'll touch on it the next time we uh, come together for a chat. Yeah, but I think I'm going to have to try to find some kind of a feed uh, somewhere along the way to so that I can see it because I think it's going to be really super interesting. So anyway, let us get back to what we know best, and that would be MotoGP. Uh, Let's just go in order as the races came out for the weekend. So we'll start off with some uh, Moto3 qualifying. The first session, we had Antonelli, Sasaki, Falon, Garcia, Fernandez, or yeah, Adrian Fernandez. Um, Artigas, Masi, and Rossi are all in that first session. I I think there's really uh, not too much there. They're kind of, it's a mixed mash all the time. But Fagia and Acosta both got to the second uh, qualifying session, so they wouldn't have to ride. Um, I suppose our... Go ahead, it's a little Sorry. bit strange to see Garcia in, in qualifying one. That would be the only sort of obvious anomaly, because uh, he was pretty quick through the free practice sessions, but just didn't, on Saturday morning, just didn't quite manage to dial it in, and, and therefore he slipped into the Q1 session. But um, that was really the only thing of note for me in there. It's a little bit like um, what we've said all year long with MotoGP. You were always going to find some of the big names in, in Q1 and particularly in Moto3, which, if anything, is even more uh, competitive and, and subject to weird things going on <laughs> through the course of the season. So not not a huge surprise to see the likes of uh, Garcia and Antonelli in there. But um, yeah, anyway, the, the usual suspects got through. So Istanhar was declared... Ist- Istandar was uh, declared unfit. He had a fracture in his right hand, so he was going to be out for the weekend. Sasaki had a crash at turn 8 early in the session, and then he had a wicked high side at turn 1. Definitely feeling the effects of that. He was down for quite a little bit uh, there. I think he uh definitely had the wind sort of knocked out of him i don't think it was like concussionary kind of a thing it was just okay that was really big that really hurt i need a minute to collect myself and then i'm going to stand up here and walk away from this one which he did so yeah that that was where we were uh so getting out of the session i guess we should say the four that got through uh antonelli garcia artigas and falon they were all there. Masia had a lap canceled as a result of track limits, and that took him out of the ability to actually get through. In the second qualifying session, Artigas uh, runs off, and then he can't restart the bike. It was a bit bizarre. He didn't do anything other than go wide. He was slowing the bike down. He got right to the end of the tarmac, Ducked both wheels into the gravel, stopped, and it was like the bike just quit. Mm. Bizarre. Unusual. Yeah, yeah. And then he was, but he was able to actually ride the bike, get it pulled back on the compression stroke, get it bumped off, and got going again. It was really odd. But he wound up having to come back through the pits to try to get going again. Halfway through this QP session, Guevara, Mino, Fagia, Alcoba, uh, Antonelli, Garcia, and then Acosta was seventh, which was interesting, and Anchu was twelfth. Now both those guys were really quick in the final final free practice session, that earned them the right to go in. It was like, whoa, these guys aren't really going anywhere. Well, that all changed because when we got to the second runs, 
pretty much this is just how it went down. Pedro Acosta, who had not had a pole yet this season, despite all the wins, the podiums, the championship, had not started from pole position in a Moto3 race. He resoundingly put the stamp of approval on that one because he took pole position by three-tenths over everybody else. Now, if this was a big track like Qatar with the big straight, Mugello, uh, Barcelona, I would say the draft, I would say those things played into him being that fast. This is a tight, twisty little go-kart type of circuit. And to be three-tenths faster than everybody else, whoa, that just sort of spoke volumes to me of like, hey, this is what happens when I get to ride a motorcycle and I have no pressure on me to perform. I can go out there and turn in some laps. That was impressive by the kid. Suzuki would start second. Then it was Guevara, Mino, Salak, Falon. Foggia was seventh. So lucky number seven was starting seventh. Fanati, Antonelli, Garcia, Tatai, Alcoba, Anchu. Fast but could not put something together in this session. He, This boy's got a problem with track limits. <laughs> he, yeah. he had a track limits issue uh, in qualifying. And we'll get on to some of that in the race. Then it was Nepa, McPhee, Bender, Artigas, and Kelso who had made it straight through. So the Aussie had made it straight through. Kelso uh, might be a guy to watch in a year or two. Um, Get him a little seasoning here. It's promising. It looks looks good for him. So that takes us through qualifying. Rich, is there something I missed from qualifying that we might want to discuss? The only thing I was going to mention was that, and we haven't seen this for a few rounds, we were back to the situation where they were leaving it, uh, and I never really quite understand the rationale no, for this. No. That, that they all left it kind of with two to three and three minutes before they all left the pits, go out in a huge group, and you think it's so risky with this yellow flag rule. But it, as it turned out, everybody turned in their laps, and there weren't any crashes in the last two to three minutes of track time in in qualifying two. So they sort of dodged that bullet. But it, it continually surprises me that they that the teams run this risk of sending people out so late. Because they leave themselves no margin for error whatsoever. But as you said, Jim, I mean, Acosta, who had made it his avowed intention at the beginning of the weekend to cap the season off with a pole, which he was missing, as you said. So a 138.668 new lap record, very impressive. Yeah, it says a lot about this kid. I mean, I think we all have him marked for stardom. Uh, yeah. yeah. But stranger things have happened. I think we've seen some people come out of Moto3, get on a Moto2 bike doesn't work with them their style they can't change the tires whatever take your pick and i give you some who somehow squeak out one victory maybe a couple of podiums in moto 2 and become moto gp champions quattro not mentioning any names yes not mentioning any names but there might have been this guy named quattro and there might be this guy named mir who really those two guys had no Moto2, well, Mir had a podium, I think. I know Mir didn't win a Moto2 race. He's a world champion on a MotoGP bike. Go figure that one out. Yeah. Quattro, I think he had one or two victories that year, and now he's a MotoGP world champion. There is no indicator. We, we have indicators that Acosta has talent, but there's no guarantee that that talent's going to take you all the way to the top. And this guy's going to be knocking on Rossi's nine championship victories or whatever. Yeah. The race, the race was 23 laps at the beginning. Acosta got a great hole shot. He had a flyer. He was out and gone. Uh, they coming out of turn four. We had a 
synchronized high side of Darren Bender and Fallon, they both sort of decided to eject themselves at the same time, which was interesting. Neither of them were hurt, thank goodness. Uh, I did think that we were going to have maybe an issue, maybe a red flag, because there was a lot going on there, but the track workers did excellent to get everybody up, off, get the bikes out of the way, and we were able to continue racing. As it shuffled out, Acosta was leading, followed by Suzuki, Guevara, Salak, Garcia, Mino, Anchi with a great start to get to where he was then, and Finati. Acosta was out front, and then he had a big front end tuck at turn three. It was the proper camera angle, so you could just look right at it. The kid had no front, and we've wondered about this, I think, all season with him, right, Rich? Is, yeah. yeah. How does he do these front end things and get away with it? Well, this one almost got away from him, but he elbowed it back up onto the center of the tire and picked it back up, a la Mark Marquez, and he continued on as if, well, yeah, I lost a place here, but so what? Give him a couple laps, and the kid was right back to the front, just being as fast as possible. Again, the, things don't seem to phase him in the way that other people take the time to figure it out. Guevara was right behind, and they were just trading places like it was every other turn. Guevara would be in front, then Acosta would go back in front. It, it was back, forth, back, forth, back, forth. Hard to pick out who was where, when, to give me which corner. I could tell you it was maybe Garcia giving him a different corner. Well, Acosta was back out front again. I, Acosta had this look of a man determined to just clean sweep this, take pull, take fast lap, take race, and be done. And walk out of here on the triple play and be like, I'm off the Moto2, peeps. See ya. Well, other people had some had some thoughts about that because Kelso, who was having a great ride, he was down. Onchu shows up with a track limits warning. <laughs> what else is new? The kid can't seem to keep it together. I mean, there's a limit here, Dennis, and you need to stay in the limit, and he doesn't seem to be able to accomplish that, Rich. Do you, do you, has he learned from recent indiscretions, do you think? Because there was some talk. I don't know if you caught the same commentary that I did, but there was some talk that him and his kind of Turkish entourage, if you like, were, were quite negative in some of their comments that went out after he got his two race uh, ban, almost to the extent that they were querying why it had happened rather than being a little bit more kind of contrite and taking the punishment. And the, the, the suggestion was, had he really learned from it or had he just fueled his desire to get to the front? The kid is quick. I mean, I mean let's be honest, he's scarily quick, but for, for me, this race, I mustn't jump to the end of the race, but it's a contender for Moto3 race of the year, for sure, because my notes are just all over the place because you just simply could not, you just couldn't keep track of who was in the top sort of 15, let alone, you know, the lead swapping all the time. And Onshu was, there was a lot of weaving down the, well, the main straight. It's not particularly long straight, it's true, but there was a lot of jinking around, you know, the sort of activity that a few races ago, everybody was saying has to stop. Onshu was certainly a big part of that as well and as you say i mean track limits this is a discussion for off off season perhaps in terms of how much we think this this needs to be kind of looked at but it is a rule everybody's aware of the rule so once or twice they have a little bit of leniency from you know the stewards but you just you knew that the long lap was coming for him yeah it, it, it is 
I don't understand it. I think it's something that we need to kind of delve into a little bit more deeper. But let's continue on down with the race. At 15 laps to go, Anchu had worked his way to the front with Acosta, Salaj, um, Guevara, Garcia, and Masia. Cooney then went down at turn 14. But then again, now Masia, who was who started way back because he didn't get a he didn't get out of Q1. He now had the march on. Again, he's he's that last group. He's that fifth, sixth guy. He goes to the front, followed by Anchu, Costa. Costa's right there. It's at this point, <laughs> the, the, the race is actually so good and so many things are happening out front. I finally write in my notes, Foggia's 10th. Because I hadn't realized where Foggia was because the front race was so great with these five, six guys just basically carving each other up the whole way around that I thought that I didn't think... Where's Fazia? Did Did you have the same thought that I had, Jim? Which was that was he just biding his time and yeah. letting the, the front guys play it out and and waiting till the last two to three laps? I thought when I wrote it down, the next thing underneath of that is is Fazia saving something for the end. Yeah. Just, but that sort of had been his uh, mo. Fazia tends to be very content to ride in the top ten as long as he can see whoever is in the front. He decides to sit back relax, let it shake out. I mean, maybe he understands that Anchu is going to run off three, four times to get a long lap penalty. And maybe he understands a couple guys may fall off because they can't ride that pace. But that seems dangerous to assume that those things are always going to happen in every race that I'm riding in. I personally, I think the safest place to be is out front. If you can do it, it's hard to do in a Moto3 race. But you know, I don't know. It, these guys are riding the bikes. I'm not. It's working for you. Go for it. With 10 to go, Anchu, Acosta, Artigas, Masia, Guevara, Mino were there. Then those guys just decided to throw any kind of uh, playbook out the window because they just started changing it up every which way. Everybody was taking a dive at somebody. It was through six, through, uh, well, you know, everybody's favorite spot, right? Uh, go through it too. Tuck back under and take them before you get to three. Then change it up when you go to four. Uh, go back to six and pass somebody there. Then we're down the sort of, I think we wind up on the, quote, backstretch kind of of the circuit, if you will. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's pass back into there. Uh, then let's go back and pass at 11. So I think 10, then 11. And then you're over the hill at 13. Well, let's just toss it in there at 14 and see what happens. It, it was just a fabulous race of everybody deciding we don't care about what, who's what, where, why. We're going to the front with this. Suzuki would fall with six to go. He went down at the first turn. It was a fast, low side. He just lost the front. Didn't, and that's normal. We see that a lot. I think TV gives us that feeling of this being flat, very flat track. It's not. There, There is, there's not 30 meters of elevation change. There's not 10 meters of elevation change, but they are going downhill rather sharply to turn one. So you don't, and the track I think is cambered the other way around to where it's an off cambered corner. I think more for drainage for the rain, I think, than anything else. So it seems to be that that's a common thing to get in there a little deep, a little hot, tuck the front and be gone. We see it all the time there. Five to go, Masi is out front. There's Garcia and uh, Costa fighting it out. Anchu's gone backwards. He's way down now. And then suddenly, out of that group, Foggia suddenly, with four to go, is at the front. Like, he went from nowhere to everywhere in the, score, in the span of 
approximately three turns because I think he started to do most of his work at 11, got by a couple. We really don't see this because the race is at the front, but Fagius, if you kind of look in the back screen, you see Fagius kind of make a couple moves at 11. He gets a couple at 14 and then finishes off by the time they get into turn one, heading to two, Fagius out front, and you're like, woo, okay. This is what we've been looking for. It is Fagia versus Acosta. Obviously, Fagia has something in the tank. He's, we know he's fast. Acosta had three tenths on everybody. Let's just have the mano a mano battle of Moto three guys, and just let's just figure out who's going to be the baddest person on the land, right? Okay, I might have a championship, but hey, I'm faster than you because I won. That's Fajia's thinking. Acosta, no, I'm going to beat you because everybody says I sort of slid into the title, if you will, because you had all these podiums and cut my lead by sixty some points. So I'm like, whoa, this is just going to be fantastic when it gets there. With two to go, it was Fajia Artigas. We get to the the incident that, or sorry, no, uh, they're there. Um, it was Fajia at two to go. It was Fajia Artigas Pedro at at turn one. Those three. Then Acosta was second at turn two. So he had gotten by Artigas to be with Fajia again because Artigas was kind of messing with everything that was going on. Like anytime Pedro was right behind Fajia, Artigas would find a way to get back by again. Now. Was Fazia slowing the pace down? I don't think so, because they were running some of their better laps towards the end of the race. So everybody was sort of on an even playing field, but Artigas was looking pretty strong. We got to that one to go. They get across the line. It's Fazia Acosta at the line, basically dead even heat, which was surprising considering what we've seen out of the lay apart Honda. That one wasn't that didn't seem as fast as it normally is shorter straight maybe that's where we're we get don't get the legs of the honda right i guess yeah i guess that's what it was wasn't it the a little bit less um breathing room done down a long long piece of track for the for the leopard to do its thing but yeah, yeah. i mean as with all motor three races it's always about the last lap isn't it more often than not and this was absolutely a case in point mm-hmm. everything is about the last lap and we found out just how crazy this was going to become because as they go into two, Acosta tries to come down the inside. Uh, sorry, Acosta's wide. He's on the outside because flip, they flipped the camera angle on me. So I got confused there for a second. And then Fagia dies up the inside because Acosta kind of beat him into one. Fagia was there running around. Fagia tries to cross back over. Fagia goes up the inside. Fa- uh, and then Fagia bumps into Acosta and Acosta goes down. So let's hold that. Let's shelve everything we want to say about that and finish off what happens the rest of the way. So Fajia continues on. Acosta is down in the gra- down in the area. They continue on. We had uh we get around. It's a great race there for on to because now he's sort of back into third at this point because he's worked his way back up which we didn't talk about but he was having a great ride at that point but then you had of course the rest of the lap to get through and again everybody's making a move at four people are passing at six it's getting crazy and wild it comes down to the very end where artigas basically winds it up uh and goes for the move on garcia in into the last turn at 14 14 Beautiful late move 
on the brakes by Artigas to gently slide Garcia out of the way, run down, and take the victory for Leopard. Garcia would be on the podium at his home track, or his home track. Yeah, Garcia's yep. home track. Yep. And then Masia, who had started way back, would get the final podium position. Then it was Salach, Anchu, who f- had fallen down because he got knocked out of the way, like on the sweeper at 13. They just used him sort of like a berm. <laughs> Don't forget, he was coming back from a long lap penalty. And he was coming back from a long lap. As well. So he was down to, to 11th or 12th at one point. If this kid could fall, could stay on the track, we wouldn't have a problem here. I think the kid would have yeah. already won one, maybe two races. He just can't seem to hold it together some way, somehow. Mm. Nepa was sixth, Guevara seventh to tie eighth. Like Anatelli was ninth, and Sasaki was tenth. McPhee, Finati are there. And let's not run any farther down here. Let's go back to the Fagia v. Acosta incident at turn one. Rich, is anyone to blame, or is it a racing incident? Let's ask that question first. Racing incident for me. Okay. Fagia just wanted to win the race. Uh, certainly there's, I don't want to say bad blood, because I'm not quite sure that would be the right term, but there's some beef between those two teams, which has been ramped up you know, in the media over the course of the last week or so since the title went to Acosta in Portimao. So maybe that's in the background. I, I certainly wouldn't subscribe. And, I, uh, and in fact, to be fair, I haven't read any suggestion that, that there was any sort of payback involved because at the end of the day, it was Binder that took Foggia out in Portimao. Acosta was not involved in that at all. So for me, it was it was a last lap racing incident. However, I mean, Foggia was definitely going to, in the same way that Binder would have done in Portimao at uh, the, the, the previous race, Foggia was not going to make the turn. And the only reason he did make the turn was because he got decelerated by Pedro Acosta, who happened to be in his way. <laughs> and obviously Acosta was down as a result of that. So, I mean, Acosta can feel aggrieved and has every right to feel that. But he's world champion. He got his pole position, which was the one card missing from the deck. So I'm sure he will be fairly magnanimous about the whole incident Foggia I suppose the question back to you was Foggia right to get hit with the penalty okay my take on it when I first saw it happen I thought immediately racing incident but the second you know when there was a quick replay of it the next thing I thought was shades of Mark Marquez Valentino Rossi Sepang because I really tried to study this. To me, it looked like Fagia sort of straightened it out and ran on. I think Fagia had a line. I think he was turning into that line. Now, did Fagia start to lose the front and have to put it back up? Entirely possible. It's at a point where my personal ability to sense that and see what's going on, because it's just pictures, it sure looked like he sat it back up to go straight with Acosta. Did the question then is did race control see it the same way? Because they gave him a three second penalty, which is why Fagia finishes 13th. Because obviously you can't have a long lap penalty because it's the last lap of the race. They obviously felt that there was enough enough of what they saw that whatever Fagia did, 
was not necessarily a, not not deliberate, but it was dangerous riding. Irresp- sorry, irresponsible riding is the word I'm looking for. Causing causing another rider to to crash, which he did. Let's face a fact: he banged into Acosta. Now. The one view that we don't have is who was out front first. Who was farther out front? Was Acosta still? Was it still Acosta's corner because he had a tire in front, or did Fazia have the corner because he had a tire out front? From the camera angles we were presented with, you can't really see. I, to me, the really damning view of it is the onboard from uh, who Garcia I think was behind them going in there. Was yeah. that because? That almost, what I tried to watch, I tried to watch where Fagia's knee was. I thought he had it down and then picked it up. Now, if you do that, that's intent. Um, in my mind, that's intent that I want to go straighter than what the track is drawn to. I, I, I want to go somewhere else. Now, did he just want to block past Acosta and it went wrong? Don't know. I'm not in Fagia's head whatsoever. But... I, it's a tough one to call because I I know we we can't be in the mind of Fodger at the exact instant that this unfolded mm-hmm. and these guys are frontline racers so they would react in certain situations different to say a standard road rider like I am for example however there is probably that thing that happens almost unconsciously where if you go into a turn you're getting into the apex, you start to lose the front, your instinct is to pick the bike up a bit to prevent a crash. And I just, for me, as I say, the the comparison with the, the Binder accident at the previous race is worth closer examination because I think both moves were quite similar in the sense that somebody just went in far too hot and they would have just picked the bike up, straight lined it, which I think is what Foggia actually did, whether it was a conscious or an unconscious thing, who, who knows for sure and in both cases there was just another bike and rider in the way uh, and 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 in both of those cases the, the rider that was in the way went down i i personally don't think there was anything malicious in it I, I just think he was going for that move on the last lap as you would always see in moto three my personal view is that he just went in too hot he was going to tuck the front he picked the bike up and then he hit acosta and that, and that was it. And let's be honest, Foggia did pretty badly out of the deal anyway, because he wasn't going to finish on the podium from there, because I think he probably dropped about fifth or sixth as a result of that incident. And then obviously he got a penalty from race control just to compound that, which dropped him to 13th, as you said. So uh, race and incident, as far as I'm concerned. And at the end of the day, Acosta's champion, it doesn't affect him. There was no kind of big outcry or you know, negative publicity around it when everything shakes out and the dust settles on it. So no major harm, no major foul for me. Fodger took his penalty. He didn't look too bothered about it when he was trotting down pit lane to congratulate his, his teammate on the win. So just one of those, Jim. Yeah, I agree. I, I was looking at it. I was trying to, maybe I didn't make myself as clear as I wanted to be. I was looking at it from race control at this point. Like I think race control was looking at it from Garcia. Saul. You know, you lifted the knee off in there, you know, that was the intent or that's where it's irresponsible riding. You were in too deep. You made a mistake. That mistake caused Acosta to be down and they went with the option that's available to them. Three second penalty. 
I hate to play ifs and buts and whatnots, but what if this championship went down to, lot, to these two guys right then at that point? Oh, I do not want to be sitting in race control. Well, we'd be having a different conversation oh. right now if that had been the case, wouldn't we? I mean, yeah. uh, and, and to be fair to race control, to have to make that decision with under one lap of the race remaining, or, mm-hmm. well, I suppose they made the decision once once people had gone across the line and then it kind of shook out in the final results. But it's one of those where you almost think perhaps it needs a little bit more deliberation because it's not a clear-cut thing. But let's be honest, 10, 15 years ago, no action at all would have been taken. I mean, that would have just yeah. been seen as what happens in racing. But we're in this era now, and unfortunately, I don't suppose it's going to go away where every decision that gets made sets a precedent and therefore it's very hard to then have any kind of leniency on things that are not quite so clear cut. And it wasn't a very, very clear cut thing for me under the circumstances. I thought three seconds was, you know, not too harsh a penalty, although it did drop him a long way down the order because the nature of motor three is that they're they're separated by, you know, tenths of a second going over the line, even after 20 odd laps. So he took his punishment you know, he'll just be looking forward to the start of next season and the cost of not being there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't... I mean, Acosta was miffed. As he walked in, sat down in the pits, he gave it the old little clap, little thumbs up, like, hey, great move there, Fagia. Eh, youthful exuberance over age, right? I was that way for a while racing bikes where, like, yeah, I couldn't control myself when something like that yeah. happened to me. There's been more than one time that there was almost a fist fight at a dirt track because of that. And guarantee you that you just you temper yourself with age and experience. And he trotted on down. He celebrated with the team because Masia was there. His teammate was there in park for Meg. They celebrated the team. Fazio was down there too. I don't. Let's put it this way. Let's, let's just remember, I just, just was in my mind, Jim, let, let's not forget that Costa completely wiped out Artigas on, on the other layer part in uh, Aragon earlier in the season. Mm-hmm. So, oh, yeah. you know, we all, when we're in the wrong, you we have short mistakes. memories on stuff yeah. like that. You, you know, oh, so yeah. he's not really in a position to go throwing stones. I mean, people, you know, that live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones and motorbike racers are very much at the top of that uh, uh, pile. So, yeah, as I say, Move on. Let's just say Fagia is not on Acosta's Christmas card Christmas card list. <laughs> nor is no. nor is nor is it vice versa, right? I think they're I think it, this would be a really good way to start Moto two if Fagia had a Moto two ride, right? You sort of carry over this battle, which would be interesting. But they Fagia's staying fine. There's no why not? He obviously becomes the odds-on favorite to be world champion next year because Acosta isn't there. Uh, you know, But it was just fascinating that we had a race like this that was so good that winds up with track limits. It had the emotion of, of Acosta going down. What was going to happen? Race control's got to step in. It, it was just everything you wanted out of a race to finish off the championship season, and that's, that's where it was. Uh, so I don't think anybody really moved around in the world championship standings there for it. We, Acosta was obviously world champion. Fagio finished second. Uh, Garcia would finish third in the world championship. I think he, he, no, everybody was still the same. I don't think anybody had really jumped up there. But uh, Masia would be fourth in the championship. Then Fanati, uh, Antonelli, Bender, Guevara, Sasaki, and Mino is how it turns out. Anchu just, finishes, just misses out on being in the top ten for the championship. I think that's Moto3, don't you think, Rich? 
Is there anything yeah, else? Yeah, only two things, I guess, really for okay. next year, which is that if somebody can mind manage on you a little better, you know, he could be a title contender because he's, you know, he's really very, very quick, but just he, he just makes far too many mistakes and gets just a bit too hot under the collar at critical moments. So if if somebody could, he's kind of crying out for a kind of an Akiyo in his corner. Obviously he's in the Tech 3 team, which I know is sort of related from a KTM uh, factory management point of view, but he kind of feel that he needs just a little bit more, yeah, close management really in terms of how he approaches races psychologically. So that's one thing for next year. And then the other thing that occurred to me uh, very clearly was, are Leopard Honda really regretting dropping Artigas for Suzuki next year? Because mm. on paper, that looks like a disastrous decision. It does right now. The Suzuki just can't stop crashing. And Artigas, you know, goes into the offseason. All right, he's, he's got a ride in another team, but certainly not a team of the level of Leopard. And, you know, he's just won his first race. Good point. Odd decision. It was an odd decision at the time that it was announced because he hasn't yeah. had a bad season, Artigas. No. Whether that, I mean, Artigas never is a rookie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, That's you never know what's going on behind the, the scenes. So it's. But, yeah. I mean, uh, extraordinary so decision, really. Yeah. Well, anyway, you we'll know see. what I think? I think they thought Fajia had a Moto2 ride. I, 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 I don't know. I do not know this, but it was late in the game that Fajia decided to stay because maybe he had a line on a Moto2 ride and he didn't get the one that he wanted on a good enough team but there's a, there's a tier levels of teams in yeah. all of the classes so maybe he didn't get the one thought well maybe my better option is to come back win a moto three world championship well okay at that point you're like hey we got we got suzuki well crap <laughs> artigas you gotta go you, you get the door because we're gonna keep fagia which i would keep fagia too yeah but you, maybe you commit it to to that earlier on I, interesting who knows? But yeah, I mean, Fodger's a no-brainer, you know, from Leopard's point of view. But Suzuki, oh, yeah. well, I, I mean, wish the guy well. I, I mean, nothing bad. Well, that's him. like Biagi's taking great. Sasaki, right? Well, yeah. It's like you're going, what? Yeah. Okay. I'm not managing the team, but okay. Let's... Change of venue might help. Moto3 done repeated. now? Yep. <laughs> All um, right, I'll hit the uh, Moto2 qualifying. I'll let you do. Tell us who wins the world title. How about that? Okay. Moto2 qualifying first session, we had Roberts, Arenas, Dixon, Gartho, Baldessari, Baliga, Chantra, and Corsi all in that first session. Ayagura was out with, I think, is an ankle injury because he had a taped up leg or taped up foot in there. So he maybe broke a bone in his foot. I didn't quite know. Do you know, Rich, is it an ankle, a foot broken? I didn't. I can only, I can only assume he did something on Friday practice, which I didn't really see any of the Moto2 action from Friday. So I'm, I'm assuming, and I may be completely wrong, that he had some kind of a tumble um, and was declared unfit. But I, I couldn't say for sure. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, did, I don't know. Arenas would fall at turn 11. But, <laughs> shocker ball shocker, Corsi would jump up to take the number one spot. Luthi had another huge jump to get to the second spot. Then it was the fish himself, Cyrene, and Roberts, who would get to go to the pleasure of Q2. In Q2, we're halfway through. Raul Fernandez is out front. I, We all sort of expect that. DJ Antonio was quick as the second spot. Kenneth, third. Then it was Navarro, Schroeder, and Luthi. Now... They come in, 
They're changing tires. Vietti will goes to pole with a great lap. Or sorry, Celestino Vietti goes to the pole there. I think I might have said Vierge, but that's not right. Then Corsi went to pole. Okay, that's a little shocking, but track knowledge is usually a good thing to have, and he came through that first session. But Fernandez then crashes at turn two, and Gardner is 12th. There's a little bit of time left to put a lap in, and Remy kind of needs this because he's not there right at the beginning, and he should be. And I don't know why Remy wasn't as fast as what he, he could be, so that was kind of confusing right at this point, but you're trying to process this while everybody's out running those final quick laps and turning red helmets. Then DG Antonio went to pole. Gardner got it to eighth, but DG's time gets taken because of a track limits. So he's got the same problem. Him and Anji get to get the same counseling sessions, apparently. <laughs> they all need that. Then Ramirez crashes, which throws the yellow flag, which we all hate this yellow flag rule of what's going on. And that pretty much locked out everybody as to where they were. So Simone Corsi got his first pole in, I think it was something like almost nine years or something. It was a yeah, super long, long time. time between poles, yeah. which was great. Then Vietti, Fernandez, Augusto. Then DG Antonio. Because Raul had fallen, he slid back to fifth. Then it was Luthi, Canet, Gardner was eighth, Navarro, Lowe's would be tenth. So that's how everybody was going to start the race. What happens in the race, Rich? What you might call a game of two halves. Uh, the race. Okay. okay. It was, uh, and I'm just looking at my notes and at various points on here, I've, I've written things like feeling queasy and super tense because it was, <laughs> I don't know about you, Jim, and I'm sure a lot of the li- listeners of the Motopod podcast are, are the same. I mean, I'm really invested in the racing and. Oh, yeah. I just don't have this thing where I don't give a damn, you know, what happens or who wins or whatever. Yes, we've all got our favorites. And I think I've declared numerous points over, you know, since I started that I was kind of hopeful that Gardner would win the title because he's been in the championship for a while and he's toiled on some substandard machinery at various points in his career in Moto2. And just one of those guys, you just, I just wanted him to win really. But, but on the same token, as a rookie into this series, you know, Raul Fernandez has been just out, absolutely outstanding and was fully deserving of the title as well. So it was very finely poised between them over the second half of the season. Um, and this was just, for me, super tense, almost unbearable to watch, I have to say. And a lot of people would say, well, that's just pathetic. But that's just the way I am in terms of how into... The racing I get, you know, and I'm, I think you're the same. I mean, I'm oh, sure yeah, most of completely. our listeners are the same. So it, it was just super tense. Fernandez, who, as you said a moment ago, had a, an off in qualifying. So he was starting fifth, which was not by any means disastrous from his point of view. And, you know, the context of this was that he had to win the race. Remy no had to finish. No option. Remy had to finish 13th or better. But this is motorcycle racing. Anything can happen. And, and so there was, but although it was just a few points separating them or, or Remy only needed three points to get the job done, you, it was by no means a foregone conclusion that that, that was going to happen. So it was all to play for. At the beginning, Vierge and Bezeki got together, I think, at turn two. 
and yeah. mm-hmm. went down pretty hard. As a result of that, uh, Baldassari, who's just come off the end of a pretty disastrous few seasons, uh, rammed into one of the bikes. So there was quite a lot of mess to clear up. But I have to say, Jim, I'm, I'm not quite sure this caused a red flag to come out because there was a lot of oil laid down on the track. But what I couldn't quite understand, and I haven't got to the bottom of, is that the oil was stretching out through turn three. But all of the three bikes that were involved in the incident went down before the turn three corner. So I can only assume that another bike must have got caught up in it somehow, continued on, and there was a line ruptured or something which caused a lot of fluid to come out. But it was, as far as I heard or read, it was never quite explained which bike it was that put all the fluid on the ground because there was an awful lot down. So I don't know if you know anything about that. This is my speculation of it. Bezeki's bike, I think, is the one that caused the oil. Because he gets it back to the pits, and the mechanics jump all over this thing. And they had, uh, I don't remember his name, but the guy who heads up Triumph, who who is their Triumph engine guy, was there. Yeah. And they ripped the bottom fairing off of the bike, and he's going in to change out that cover and change out the guarding that goes over that cover. And that obviously, anywhere in a four-stroke motor like that, a cover at the bottom near the crank has a potential for oil leaking out of it. I think that from the way the Bezeki's bike went down, and I think it got hit on that side by the bike that came along, I think that may have cracked that cover to mm. the point where when first inspection by the corner workers, they didn't see that it was actually dropping oil. They let him get back up, and they bumped it off, and he rode off around that corner, and I think that's where the oil came from. That's my best guess at it because the only bike – in my mind that had enough damage to actually put oil down has been Bezeki's bike because even yeah. Simon Crafer was saying hey they're changing out this cover at the bottom of the crank and there's a skid plate to protect it and they're replacing that too well it had to have been that bike after everybody was down we never saw Bezeki bump start and get going again we just saw him riding back to the pits which he then maybe almost fell or something to that nature going through turn three because essentially it was the crash happens at turn two but it's turned into turn three is where all the oil is yeah so then he rides back in and takes an access road to get back to the pits and they all they start working on it so that's that's my guess as to what happens but this is another one of those like you like you said emotional you're sick you're feeling queasy about it I'm queasy because I'm looking at these mechanics trying to fix a motorcycle that has been abused fairly well and they are thrashing that bike to get it back together again and you're just pulling for them you just want them to be able to get this done and you're just hoping and hoping and hoping and it's like could we get another hand in there could you you me i want to reach through the tv set and, and hand tools to someone or i want to to uh hold a fairing or turn a wrench a sp- anything i want to set a spanners because i want to help because i'm so like no because i, I that is just and I don't know, maybe that's too many years of dirt tracking and whatnot, because it was it was anytime anybody was there and you couldn't get a bike to start or there was a crash and, and things were bent from it, it didn't matter who's, and at the time, you know, you're all kids, you know, it's your dads and stuff that are running around your family. It's this dad's, this kid's dad helping that kid with his dad. And, you know, I've seen bikes that were trashed upside down and twisted and there's three dads pulling handlebars back into position and another one's, you know, 
kicking the pipe out from under the swing arm and whatever else. And I just have that feeling of like, oh, these guys got to get this done. And anyway, there was a an added poignancy to that as well because of course it was Bezeki's last race in Moto Two as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Plus, plus there was the whole you know Valentino farewell, all the all the Academy riders wearing the special helmets, you know, from mm-hmm. over his career and stuff. It was super super special the whole weekend with all of that stuff going on, and it would have been a maybe a travesty is not the right word, but it would have been very unfortunate for Bezeki had he not made it out. So I mean, as it turned out, it was quite a long pause because uh, from wherever it came from, and I'm, I don't think we're really quite. Exactly. No, we don't know exactly where all that oil came from, and there was a I'm lot of it. I'm speculating. It must have taken them a good 15 to 20 minutes, I think, to clean it up to an extent that was satisfactory to allow the race to to restart. So, luckily for Bezeki's team, they did have just about enough time. Although, of course, as we saw, they didn't quite make it out for the sighting lap on the quick uh, on the quick restart procedure. So, unfortunately for Bezeki, he did manage to get out, but unfortunately, he had to take up. Uh, a position on the on the rear of the grid which kind of i guess screwed his race up really so didn't quite afford him the chance to go out in a blaze of glory but the so the restarted race was going to be over 16 laps which for me again just ramped up the pressure even more because you just know shorter race people are going to be scrabbling you know and perhaps you just never know what's going to happen because less time to get the job done for everybody so uh the next kind of bit of drama that happened uh, on the on the restart was that poor old Corsi first pole position for nine or ten years or whatever it was he peels off into pit lane with the MV Augusta seemingly in some kind of electronic uh, malady which basically put him out which was just <laughs> terrible heartbreak heartbreaking <laughs> I'm like on this emotional roller coaster of of being nervous because the race is starting and Remy's in the back there's a crash that could have taken Remy out, but Remy somehow avoids it and gets through it. Now I'm like, okay, so I'm, I'm on this nervous high. Okay, now I drop to this low because Bezeki's bike is basically in pieces. And now I'm just rooting for the mechanics to get it. Oh, they don't quite get it, but they got it. Oh, I'm all excited again. And then, okay, we're going to go start the race. Wait a minute, where the hell is Corsi? <laughs> like, so now I'm going down the next hill of emotions. It's like, good grief. It's For a final race, you're just, everything that you can think of is being thrown at you and it's like okay I, whatever um was, was, what the hell happened now because we got 16 laps of, well, of racing to do I, I didn't even mention the fact that on the, the the first part of the race when that crash happened on lap one my initial thought was oh my god i hope you know gardner's not caught up in that innocently so i was kind of out of my seat like oh no what's happened but then of course it was va so uh, same old same but um yeah so from from the restart poor old course he was out as we said uh, Augusto Fernandez went straight into the lead, but Raul Fernandez made another cracking start and was straight into second place. Gardner kind of just about held his ground and was in ninth. And you're thinking, okay, that 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 that'll do. But pretty quickly, Raul got into his stride, as we've seen him do so many times this season, and got into uh, position one from I think the second lap of the restart, and really from there, just just kind of got into that momentum that we've become accustomed to him you know getting into when he's out front and, and not kind of getting uh, carved up by other people vietti was having another very good race and he's a rider i think we, we will have to keep a very close eye on next season because although he had a, a reasonably quiet first half of the season he's really started to get the measure of, of the moto 2 bike in the second half of the season 
And although we haven't talked about him a, a huge amount, he's gradually been working his way further forward uh, and starting to show the class that everybody saw in Moto3. Again, he didn't quite perform uh, during his Moto3 career, perhaps to the heights that were expected, but he, he had some very good races in Moto3. And I think he's going to be a contender in Moto2 next year. Anyway, back to the race. Gardner was kind of stuck in this ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th position. And again, I'm starting to sweat again, thinking, I just hope this doesn't go wrong. He had close attention initially from Tom Lutie, who was a little bit under the radar for the weekend. And let's not forget Lutie. This was his final race weekend because uh, yeah, he retired retiring. this weekend. And unfortunately, I mean, we felt a bit sorry for Danilo Petrucci in MotoGP, but Tom Lutie's exit from frontline race and went pretty much without a second a second glance really which was a bit of a shame for him and uh, Nagashima who was Remy Gardner's teammate I think last year uh, he was also in very close proximity to Remy um, from my point of view just because of the way I feel about all of this and I've put my cards on the table uh, on lap 11 so not too far to go Gardner got through back through to uh, P10 and at that stage, there was about one and a half to two seconds of empty track in front of him. So he was just able to then get into a little bit of a rhythm. And you thought, OK, he's a little bit safe, but you just never know. And we have seen Remy, you know, chuck it away a few times this season. He was helped a little bit because Hector Cartho, who I think was in around about 14th place, but was starting to move forward a little bit. He he went down and you start to think that's a little bit of a relief as well. And then. As we've seen with Moto2 over the over the last two to three laps, it was just kind of settled into a pattern. It was really just about Fernandez was going to win the race. We knew that out front. Raul was just clicking off the laps and was very, very fast and assured at the front and showing his class. It was really just for me about Remy keeping it sunny side up and not having a an unforced error or a bike problem or, you know, a crazy last lap move because Nagashima did start moving in and closing in that gap towards the very end. But as it turned out, Gardner did make it across the line in 10th place. And for me, uh, although it was a close run thing, a very deserving champion, because as with Acosta, who lost a lot of points in the second half of the season, and Gardner, perhaps not to quite the same extent, but he did really start to lose ground to, to Raul Fernandez over the course of the, certainly the last third of the season. At the end of the day, the guy with the most points wins. And, a deserving champion for me, Jim. Yep, I agree. I I was like at that point where Remy finally got out front. I was the same thing. I'm like, Remy's you got to find a rhythm, pal. You got to get do your thing, ride your race. You've got to. I don't know if he was riding tight. I don't know if he was trying. Couldn't relax. Who knows? I'm like, I got to like two laps to go, and I'm like, come on, Remy, come on, Remy. Written in my notes because I just I wanted it to happen. I just I wanted this to happen for Remy because I think he. Again, you, there's something about the Aussies. I tend to really like them, how they get on with it. And, well, you know, tough, you know, kind of like the whole Brits. demeanor. The whole demeanor is just happy-go-lucky, isn't it? Yeah. It's stiff upper lip kind of thing, right? But only it's a whole other level with, with Aussies. And I was so great to see him get the title. I thought it was fitting that these guys finish now only four points behind, considering they'd never been that far apart at all during the season. And yeah, Raul did stretch some wins and put down some great wins to bring this title, which was sort of in Remy's back pocket 
to make it a fighting chance. So good on them there. They become, the Gardeners become only the second father and sons to ever win world championship motorcycles, championships, following Kenny Roberts and Kenny Roberts Jr. Jr., yeah. So that when you stop and think about that, that is incredible. I thought for sure, I, I, I knew that, it was that Roberts and his son, KRJR, had done it. But I had thought there was somebody else along the way who had done it as well. And then when they said, well, yeah, this is only the second time in, in any world championship, which that's just makes it that much more incredible that all of that happened. I think both Fernandez and Gardner are going to be amazing to watch in MotoGP. The question is, I know Remy's style is going to fit that KTM. You just know it's going to. Yeah. The question is, is can Raul get used to having to ride that bike semi-sideways? And I think he can. I mean, here's a kid who came out of Moto3 and just obliterated Moto2 as a rookie. It, I mean, it's, it's almost as impressive watching what Raul did in Moto2 as Acosta did in Moto3. They're, they're like at that same level. It's just Acosta winds up with a world championship and, you know, Fernandez doesn't. It's a mental thing next year for Fernandez because we know it was, what, half, half a million euros to go get on a Yamaha? He wanted to be on a Yamaha? Yep. I mean, but, but remind me to talk about this at the end of Moto GP coverage, Rich, because I, mm-hmm. I, I got something that I think we need to really think about here. I have nothing else for Moto2. You got anything else, Rich? I mean, congratulations, Remy Gardner. Congratulations yep. to the Gardners for that, for that stretch. I mean, incredible, man, the fact that, that they were there. And what he's the, and Remy's the first middleweight, or however you want to describe it, 250 slash Moto2 world cha- Australian world champion since Cal Carruthers way back. I mean, I to look that that's a long, yeah, that's a way back there. Because Cal Carruthers yeah. was the guy who tuned all the Yamahas for Kenny Roberts and uh, Eddie Lawson at the time, way back in the 80s. So it yeah. was back in the early 70s or something that Carruthers was a 250 world champion, so to speak. I suppose the only other shout out to make really, and this applies to Moto3 as well, but is Aki Ayo's team. I mean, world what, what, a, what a year that guy's had in that team. Um, I mean, he's an amazing talent spotter. Guru. Yeah, I mean, he... he yeah, he sees things that we obviously don't see. Or he might be like how hockey teams or professional sports teams do it. They have tons of spotters going around to these local races. Because, I mean, it is part of the Red Bull Cup, right? There, there, there are all these kids running around junior world championships and stuff. And Red Bull is obviously a part of that. KTM's obviously a part of that. So I think they've got an idea of which kids are going to be potentially great. But... Io seems to be able to find the ones that are going to be elite. So, yeah. yeah, it was great for them. They're team champions in Moto2 and Moto3. Fantastic season for those guys. A, a fascinating uh, podcast that I listened to with him, which is the official MotoGP podcast, which is run by Fran Wild and Matt Dunn, I think, is the name of the guy that does the, the commentary through the weekend, apart from the main races in Moto2 and Moto3. And they had Aki Ayo on there. And he is, is clearly a guy who really understands how to manage riders in terms of their kind of their psychological side. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, he said, for, for example, with Acosta, uh, when he got that pole position on the Saturday, that when the rider's happy and in a settled place, the speed just automatically comes. Very you know, true. so and, and this is what I was saying about somebody like Dennis Onchi, who's a classic example of somebody that just needs somebody like Akiyo in his corner just to harness that raw speed and just couple it with that that precision of the mental approach and, and the restraint almost to, to be devastatingly quick and that's what Acosta has been when he needed to be that's certainly what Fernandez and Gardner have, have have been perhaps Fernandez more so than Gardner in a, in a way Remy's been extremely consistent hasn't had the crashes uh this year that, that Fernandez has, has had because his 10th place finish on Sunday was his worst result of the year so you know points win prizes don't they and, and he's got yes, the biggest do. prize of all so yeah that's all I've got to say on Motor 2 really MotoGP in MotoGP qualifying one Rins Bender Paul Sparger who had a huge crash I mean uh, I didn't think he was ever going to come down I hideous he, I thought yeah, yeah, it was definitely hideous so he was not riding he was definitely in the Valencia hospital I have not found out any more details as to what may be not be broken busted banged up on him um i don't know if you've heard anything rich the 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 commentators on saturday said that he hadn't broken anything he had quite severe bruising of the ribs because i i obviously honda haven't and almost certainly will not say what happened but to crash like that at that turn really suggested that an electronic uh blip of some description had occurred because it kind of threw him off and he kind of span almost horizontally in the air, didn't he, before he hit the yes, deck yeah. and he came down hard. I mean, that's a quick, quick turn anyway. And so he beat himself up, but I'm, I'm almost positive that he was just told not to race on Sunday because they need him on tomorrow or, or sorry, Thursday, Friday this week for this, this crucial test in her Yeah, so I guess he's definitely. been consigned to his bed. So I don't think he's broken anything. But clearly he was pretty, pretty beaten up. Yeah. When was the last time you don't remember two Repsol Hondas on a grid? Or a Repsol Honda on a grid? Um, well, I'm, I'm, I think I heard, and I would have, again, I would have had to have looked it up because you're, you're sort of heading into the last century, which makes <laughs> us feel very, very old. Cause we yes, can we remember, are old. We can remember, you know, some of the races from back then. But uh, was it 1992? That's what I was thinking, because it had to be like with when Dewan crashed out, there wasn't anyone there at the time. Yeah. So yeah, the, something something that was a hell of a long time. Let's just say a hell long of a long time. time. Yeah. I'm gonna go with that. But after Espargaro, there was Lecawona, Alex Marquez, Petrucci, and Oliveira. The man missing in that first qualifying session, Rich, was the uh, man who's usually there but isn't there, but it made it to Q two was. Go on, you'll have to remind me. My the star of the place. show himself won Valentino Rossi. He had oh, made it. Yes. He had made it through. He had gotten a toe from Pecco Benyaya. To, he was on the Christmas card list. He was on the well, you know, <laughs> pip, privilege of being the boss. Hey Pecco, I need a toe. I got to be able to get out of. Got to get right to Q1. Okay, can can you help me out there? So where were we? Oh, Alex had went down at turn one. There were yellow flags. Uh, Rins and uh, Bender would go through. Not too much there. It was at this point that everyone sort of got Rossi fever because we come upon the fact that the race would be happening on the 11th month, 14th day of the tw- of the year 21. If you take 11, 
add 14 and add 21, you get to the magic number of 46. Uh, I'm obviously a bit bit thicker obtuse, but I saw the T-shirts and I hadn't worked out what that was all about. Thank you for just explaining that to me. (laughs) (laughs) And to make it even just that much more crazier, this race was taking place in the 46th week of the year. You you just can't write these things sometimes, right? Uh-huh. Although there is there is a theory that you can make something happen when you know it's going to be there. It was I don't there's a psychological term for it, right? Uh, not sure what it's called, but it's kind of like the fact that you you may have a a red uh, a red Mazda RX-7, and you never pay attention that there's other Mazda RX-7s until you have one, and then you see all the other ones, right? So there's there's something. There, people say there's like a psychological thing in there that you can make it happen because back in the 60s or back in 1970, you had Apollo 13. They were launching at 1.13 Central Time, which was 13, 13, 13, so they could be in lunar orbit at the proper time. And people were going crazy figuring out 13s. And the day that they launched, if you add all the numbers and the dates, it came out to being 14. <laughs> or 13, sorry. So it's the same thing. Yeah, it just got to happen some way, shape, or form. Photopod, the conspiracy show. Yes, we are, yes. Miller, Martin are having the exact same lap time. They both turned to 133.25, down to the thousandth of a second, Unreal. which is crazy. Halfway through, Miller, Martin, Benyaya, Mir, Rins, and Quattraro there. Then Benyaya bagged a 130 flat. It was 130.000 to be the quickest man. And... Then guess what? He crashed at turn two, and yellow flags are out. And I'm thinking, he just locked himself onto pole, right? Because we've had this conversation, hate this yellow flag thing, nobody's supposed to go fast in a sector. But I guess the flags came out, and Martin was able to sneak a lap in at the end. He's the first man to get a sub-130 that weekend at a 129.936. Miller fell off at turn 11 on a, on a lap that would have been almost the equal of Martin, but he... You got to finish, so it falls off. Qualifying finishes up with Martin taking another pole. That rookie has been quick. I think that's three or four poles that he had, or five, five poles, something like that. Then Benyaya Miller. So that gives you a front row lockout for Ducati. First time I think that's happened. Then Mir with the Suzuki on fourth, who basically was shell-shocked at how fast the Ducatis were. And how they can turn, which it seems as though, as you have said, Rich, the best bike on the grid is actually a Ducati. I'm not sure who, if I would have ever said that, but apparently they've got it figured out. Zarco, fifth, Renz, Bender, Quattro, Nakagami, Rossi, with a 10th place starting position, then Morbidelli and Alessio Spargaro. That was qualifying. So anything else to add on to that, Rich? Nope. All right. Um... No, just a, a a good qualifying session. The only thing that nearly was disastrous that on the first run that Rossi did, where he was using his mate Banyaya for a toe, he almost rear-ended him <laughs> going into the first turn. That that could have been a disastrous. bit gnarly, but luckily nothing <laughs> untoward Cooler happened. heads prevailed and Rossi rode yeah, wide. Just, just about. <sighs> that was amazing. Again, it's Sunday. It's race day. It is Rossi's final take. This is it. 26 seasons, 25 years. From 1996 to 2021, Rossi was a Moto G- in the MotoGP paddock. It was incredible. It was amazing. The, yeah, I, ben, uh, 
Petrucci, who's also on his last ride in the MotoGP category, as he's going to do rally raid racing, he's emotional at the beginning. There's already tears going. Rossi somehow, you know, every camera was on Rossi. We saw Rossi walk out one last time from the garage. We saw him bend down, say, are you ready, Boots? And get on a motorcycle. And I'm thinking, what does Rossi say when he gets in a race car? Ready steering wheel? I'm <laughs> not really sure. Want to ask. Wanted to tweet that for a friend. Didn't do it. Should have. But it was, it was everything was about Rossi at the beginning. Everybody, it, and why not? They was seven, eight people deep around Rossi. Uh, everybody had all the VR46 riders had replica Rossi helmets from the classics that Rossi had. Although nobody had the one where he's screaming on top of his helmet where he going through uh what was that Casanova and Magello? Yeah. I suppose nobody had that one. I thought that was one of the mm. best Rossi helmets he ever had, which I thought was yeah. But that one, yeah. that one missed. When the race did start, Martin got a whole shot, followed by all the Ducatis. Benyaya had slid backwards, though. And Mir, with that new flexi, new whole shot device, flexi, flexi bike that Suzuki has, was able to get himself to third going into the second turn. Mir was super aggressive on Miller. They were banging it up. Mir had to. If he was going to stay with the guys out front, he was going to have to go with them. And he tried his best. Benyaya simply slid past both Mir, that Ducati horsepower paying dividends as always. Renz was third now, so the Zuki's were going well. Miller was going backwards. And then it, it was like, we don't know that at the time, but then I thought maybe perhaps Miller was going to try to save the tire a little bit because it wasn't like everybody was talking that there would be a lack of grip, but everybody was saying that it does take a toll on the tire. We find out later that was actually true. Nakagami would fall off at turn six. He lost the front. 20 to go. Martin, Benyai, and Renz are out front. Renz had actually gotten past Mir. Quattraro had moved himself up. He was now running fifth. Miller was behind Quattraro. And as Miller said afterwards, the race, I got to a point where I realized if I kept saving the tire, there'd be no race left because everybody was checking out on me. So Miller decides to get his head down, gets past Quattraro. Renz takes care of the problem all by himself by falling at turn six. That boy, yeah, Rich has his hand on his head. Yeah, I get it. I Again, so let, let's put this in here. So here's a little thing. We have Adrian Fernandez going to Moto GP Tech 3 on KTM. I don't know how long that deal is for, but we know in 2023, Alex Renz will probably not be riding a Suzuki. Do you not see the line where Adrian Fernandez now goes? Augusto, yeah. yeah. Raul Fernandez, sorry, not Adrian. Raul goes from KTM over to a Suzuki. Well, there's a, a, a long queue of people that are highly kind of qualified and motivated, uh, and particularly with Suzuki's track record of taking people from Moto2 and taking a you know a little bit of a punt, and, and you have to say very successfully over the years, including Rins, who is you know devastatingly fast when he can finish. I think there's but, one too many crashes for Rins. He, yeah, he I don't see him on that motorcycle. No, I, I. Sorry. For me, that, that yeah, I, I mean, it pains me to say it because I'm a, I'm a big fan of Rins. Because I think on his day, I mean, I will never ever forget being in the stands at Silverstone a couple of Marquez. seasons ago when he t- took Marquez on the line. I mean, that was just a, an absolutely stunning moment, particularly to be there and, and and witness it firsthand and hear the crowd and stuff. So on his day, he's you know he's really great, but those days are just too far few and far between unfortunately for Rins and it's a little bit like the situation with um, Takagi Nakagami really again you, you know he just crashes out of good positions far too often and, and certainly from Nakagami's point of view I wrote on my notes you know Ayagura 
waiting in the wings. You know, clearly, you know, the next promotable Honda stable uh, talent, you you know, who's who's on his way up to MotoGP for very much longer. So I would say probably Nakagami and Rins will not be in their current respective teams come the 2023 season. Not to say they won't be in MotoGP, but you know there are only so many places and there are a lot of very quick young kids coming up at the moment and some of these people are going to suffer yep i agree benyaya gets by martin at uh turn 14 then benyaya kind of just starts to ride his race and he just goes in metronomic mode and just puts the laps down puts the laps down, puts the laps down quattro kind of comes up a little bit but miller starts to really get going because he gets he gets by quattro as i think i said that he starts marching up the field he finally gets past Mir for third. That was with nine to go. With five to go, Benyaya's it's it's basically done. It looks like a parade at this point. Nobody's really going anywhere. Rossi's tenth has been tenth, was eleventh uh, when Renz was there until Renz fell, which handed Rossi the tenth place. The final finish is Benyaya, followed by Martin and Miller. The whole podium is nothing but Ducatis. Mir then Quattro. Rossi will finish tenth. It's the first Ducati podium lockout in all that. Nothing against the guys that won the race. It's all about Valentino Rossi here at this point, Rich. Yeah. An amazing career. I think you and I both agree he stayed at the dance three, four years too long. That's Rossi's complete and total deal. If he wants to, he can. I'm not, like I said, how would you like to be Lynn Jarvis and tell the legend, the GOAT, (laughs) sorry, you don't have a spot on a factory team anymore. You know, I don't want to, I couldn't have done it. I mean, I think there's a lot of loyalty to Rossi just from the standpoint that Rossi did probably more for MotoGP than he will ever get back for MotoGP. He made it a household name. You ask anybody, mention the name MotoGP, somebody will probably in the crowd of five people will say, oh, that's that Rossi kid, right? That's how global Valentino Rossi is. He leaves MotoGP in an absolutely fantastic state. We have some amazing talent an amazing talent coming that's there but i thought we'd do like a little rossi tribute real quick just a few things just for it um rossi had 432 starts he had nine championships he had uh, what six of them in uh no se- se- seven of them in moto seven moto gt moto gp titles my i question for you rich what is your favorite rossi race of all the ones that he's ridden and there's been a whole bunch do you have a favorite is there one race that stands out for you that rossi either did something incredible is it laguna seca with the pass on casey stoner what do you have anything we can go on this more when we do a season i, mean, we, I thought we, could, we have to do something in terms of best rossi moments i mean we could fill a show with oh, these I, could, yeah. I, I mean i mean trying to boil it down to one is is almost impossible comes to your head so I'm, I'm trying to go a little bit left field. I, I mean, the one that immediately springs to mind, and I, I think it is his best moment, would be uh, Barcelona 2009 when he took Lorenzo on the on the last turn. Okay. You know, almost lost the front end. You know, you see the reaction of the, the, the team in the pits. You know, they're knocking all the equipment over. It was just adrenaline gone mad. And... A stunning last three or four laps as well between Lorenzo and, and Rossi, just swapping places. So that was brilliant. But I was trying to go back a little bit further and look at some really cool moments. And I reminded myself of Suzuka 2001, which is when Rossi and Biaggi 
it was the famous Biaggi elbow coming out of the final turn, which put Rossi on the grass. And although they were clearly bitter rivals already at that point, it really amped up that kind of animosity between the two. And if you remember, it did actually come to physical blows in Barcelona that season on the way up to the podium. They actually uh, exchanged uh, fisticuffs. Uh, not that it was caught on camera, but that's certainly what happened. But the, the Suzuka one was funny because a lap or two later, Rossi got back past Biaggi and then going through the first turn, Bearing in mind, that's a, probably a 130 mile an hour turn. And this was on an SR500 as well, I might hasten to add. Flicks in the bird as he goes by. So it was just a, a, a completely classic, classic moment. Um, and just summed up everything about Rossi, which he was the sort of the Kevin Schwantz of the new new era, wasn't he? Uh, and yeah, he had that clown. A star was born, yeah. Yeah, he was sort of clownish. Was having fun, just racing motorcycles. My the best race I think Rossi ever rode was I believe it's 2003 Phillip Island. They nail Rossi for passing under a yellow flag and they give him yep. a 10 second penalty. And Rossi just said, "Oh, okay." Open the tap on that V5 Honda, which I will make this statement that bike was heads and shoulders above anybody else's four stroke bike. But still, Rossi ran off to a 30 second victory. And I remember thinking, if Rossi tried that hard at every race. He would win every race by that much, but yeah. Rossi never did. Rossi stayed. Rossi rode a lot of races in the pack and just simply toyed with everybody until he was able to actually win. So, sort of my favorite Rossi moment. I've got that on my list as well. <laughs> in fact, I watched that race earlier on today just to remind myself about how brilliant that race was. It was. Because if you remember, Bayliss had a really horrible crash and went down, but it was quite far off to the left on well it doesn't matter which turn it was and so Rossi overtook Melandri going into that turn on the following lap and that's where he got the 10 second penalty from and as you say after that he just rode away from the field it was just pure class that and obviously the other one that you can't can't ignore is welcome 2004 the the first race on the Yamaha when again Biaggi who features large in all of these early seasons when Rossi came up to the big bikes you know Rossi uh, sorry Biaggi having kind of bitched and moaned about how superior the Honda was and that he should be on it, jumps on the Camel Honda and then Rossi takes the inferior, inverted commas, Yamaha and beats Rossi at the first, uh, and beats Biaggi at the first attempt. Yeah, I mean, just, you could, like you said earlier on, I mean, it's, it's the stuff of movie scripts, really. Mm-hmm, it is. I, I love the fact that Rossi brought the celebration. He really amped the celebration. The victory celebrations Rossi created were amazing. My favorite one, without a doubt, is Rossi wins the race, stops, runs over to the corner workers, hops the fence, goes into the Porta John, yeah. stays in there for a little bit, then comes back out like, dude, I was that fast because I had to go pee. There was the Claudia <laughs> Schiffer one with the blow-up doll that, again, that was a classic. Rossi with Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. I, there's so many things that Rossi did that were just so cool and so amazing. Those are a couple of my favorites. I mean, I don't want to turn this. I think we might have to do in the season review. Maybe we should expand upon the Rossi legacy. But those are just a couple of moments that I thought were just absolutely amazing that Rossi did. He's did more than probably anybody else has done. And it's it's going to be different to not think that Rossi is going to be there. But with the racing that we have and the talent that's coming, we are not going – Rossi will be missed. But you haven't really noticed that Rossi wasn't there because the racing has been so good 
that you are just addicted to what's going on in front. Yeah, and we must we must just add that Rossi's race on Sunday, okay, it was a very strong finish in 10th place, but it's the fastest he's ever been around Valencia over a race distance. Now, yes, the bikes year on year get faster, it's true, but he's never ridden that race as fast as he did on Sunday. Yeah. And turn those sorts of lap times. So it's it's not that the guy has particularly slowed down. It's just that, you know, age has caught up with him and the young guys can just go that marginal amount faster. And it is a marginal amount, really, when you kind of look at the lap times over the course of a race. Uh, he, he's had some poor races in the last couple of seasons. We've all, we've all seen that. And it's clear in this second half of the season that he's kind of checked out a little bit because once you know you're going it's kind of inevitable really but he went in with his his game face on on Sunday you might I, I took particular note of the fact that and I'm sure you saw this as well Jim despite the sort of the eight or nine deep crowd around the bike before you know they set off he spent a good minute and a half kneeled down at his foot peg just contemplating the race ahead and getting himself mentally prepared yeah and he went into the race determined to do well i think and i'm just so mm-hmm. yeah. I'm so happy because because everything about rossi has always been for the most part it's always been so joyous he's always looked like a guy just really enjoys rice racing bikes and riding bikes whereas a lot of people make it look like it's a tough old way to earn a living which it most certainly is and rossi's never really given that impression but you just knew that on sunday he wanted to go out uh, on a high and it would have been the worst thing in the world for him to have fallen off and for, that would be such last. an anti-climax. We'll finish last. So, you know, finishing 10th was just absolutely fabulous. Yeah, it couldn't have been any better. The way that he did it was fantastic. So, Grassi Valley, I think, is the only way to leave that one. Yep. Is there anything else from the race that we should talk about, Rich? I think we pretty much got it all because nothing else really happens in the race. It, it was all about Rossi as it should be. Can't take anything away from the guy. Not trying to. Yeah, well, it was all about Rossi and it was all about Ducati, wasn't it? Yeah. I, I mean, in Yamaha's, for differing reasons, in Yamaha's, Suzuki's, and more particularly Honda's uh, point of view, they must be looking on 2022 with a pretty high degree of trepidation, I would imagine. Because Yeah, that that was a Motorsport Magazine article by Matt Oxley where he's talking okay. about how good the Ducatis actually are. And he was talking to Juan Mir and Juan Mir saying... I've, I wrote, I'm, not, I'm mad I'm not on the podium, but I can't be disappointed in myself because I got everything out of the motorcycle that I was given. We have work to do. That ought to scare everybody in the paddock. And soon there's going to be eight factory Ducatis. Yeah. Eight of them on there. And all with good riders on them. All with very good riders on them. And you have to think that somewhere along the way, early days here, but you got to think that Benyaya has got to be maybe the favorite to be world champion next year. Definitely. Martin's going to probably be there as well because he's going to be really fully fit. Miller, Miller's up and down. We've seen Jack throw it away when he hasn't had to, but Quattro is going to have to find something special to beat these guys. And as Mod Oxley says in his article, maybe the only person you can beat the Ducati Storm that's coming is a fully healed Marquez on a radically different 2022 Honda. That's a scary proposition. It could be a Ducati whitewash, but they have all fair play to Ducati. They have DG Dolina has gone through a systematical method of making that motorcycle better year over year, over year incrementally 
without losing what is the best part of that motorcycle, i.e. it's a straight line speed and the horsepower that it has. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, it's a hideous looking thing. It's, it's the ugliest bike on the grid by, by a I'll fair margin. Mile. Yeah, but, you know, the old criticism of the bike, which is that it just wouldn't turn. It would, you know, in old language, it would just understeer like crazy. And, you know, you would always see people losing the front end on it. That, as you say, and it's taken many, many seasons to achieve this, but that bike is now at a point where, as, and I'm only repeating verbatim what I hear the likes of experts like Simon Crayfast saying and so on, which is that that is now the best bike out as an all round package. And with the riders that they've got and the experience that those riders have, that is the best bike on the grid. I'm not a betting man, but even I'm tempted to run down to the bookies and put a hundred quid on Banyaya for next season because I'm that confident that unless something disastrous happens, injury-wise or whatever, he's going to be really hard to beat. Suzuki, okay, they've shown some progress over this weekend and the last couple of weekends in terms of the new shapeshifter and so on. But again, they're in a catch-up mode. KTM went AWOL this year and appear to be a little bit all at sixes and sevens, clearly suffering from having lost their concessions, which is a system that I love in, in MotoGP because it does allow the, the tail enders to, to catch up and KTM did demonstrate that. Aprilia, okay, they've made progress, but again, it's it's kind of hit the brakes a little bit towards the end of the season. Yamaha need to find speed. I don't know that Quattro needs to pull anything out, but certainly Yamaha do. They, they need to give them power. They need a more more of a weapon to, for him to fight the Ducatis for sure. And the Honda, well, God knows what what they must be thinking at the moment, because they've lost their main rider, who the bike is built for. Their other kind of reserve rider, who's a bit debatable in terms of his reliability, in terms of Paul Espargaro, in terms of staying on the thing, is is going to be still very sore for this crucial first test. And really, how much use is Nakagami? And Alex Marquez going to be given their their relative form or, or and or experience. So Honda head into the winter season with you know a real head scratcher. And if again I don't want to be too sensationalist about this, but again some well respected journalists that I've been listening to or reading about you know some of their comments, there is this question mark about Marquez in terms of whether he will actually come back this time because it was a career threatening eye injury that he had all those years back i was saying 2011 apparently it was it was a bit earlier than that i think it might have been 2009 or something but anyway whenever it was it was very serious then and it's very serious now and on top of everything else you know does he really yeah. need to push the limits and risk it anymore I, questions that we all have to wait to find out I think that's good for the show, Rich. We've definitely rattled on forever. Oh, one more thing? Okay. Well, you asked me to give you a reminder. You had something you wanted to say at the end of the show. Oh, that was I was talking about the trying to draw the line between uh, Raul Fernandez going to take Renz's seat. Ah. So, yeah. Right, I just right. To me, it, it kind of lined up. Renz is, you, you put the kid in Moto for, for 2022. You put him in, uh, you know, the first year on the on that KTM. And he we know he kind of doesn't want to be on that bike. And if Renz is gone, I think there'll be, you know, enough money paid to somebody to free that kid from that contract to put him on a Suzuki. I, yeah. I, if I'm a Suzuki, I'd be, I would totally be trying to couch scrunch coins of any kind to be able to free him from that contract. But I don't know if Pit Buyer is going to let him go. But it's speculative, which is there. Yeah. So we will see. Alrighty, folks. Uh, we will not have a show next week. That is the week of U.S. Thanksgiving here. So for everyone 
who is in the U.S. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Have a safe Thanksgiving. I will be traveling on vacation, so <laughs> I will be glad to be away from the racing scene for a few days. It's going to do me wonders. But we will be back. Rich and I will be back. We definitely have some off-season show thoughts, ideas that we have. Not too sure what kind of a schedule we're going to be on there, but we'll be sure when we do a show. There's definitely going to be a review show. We'll do that when I get back from vacation. After that, not too sure what's going to happen here and there. Um, maybe we'll try to wait till there's some news or we've got something else going on. We'll definitely tweet and let you know that there's something happening. But we don't, we're not going to go dark until like the test, that's for sure. We're definitely going to have some shows in between. So be ready for all of that. Uh, anything else, Rich? I don't think so. Not really. I mean, if if people have any particular subjects or speculative things or you know left field things that they would like us to to get into talking about and sharing with them, you know, please please send us your ideas. I've got a list of things that I think would be good to talk about over the off season, just to keep keep things churning out every every two or three weeks. So there's always plenty to talk about. But if, yeah, if listeners have particular things they'd like to like us to get into, I think we'd like to get uh, Don back on. Yeah, uh, I got a list of questions for him that I got to send it. Yeah, so yep. I think that one's going to be really interesting to do. Um, you know, if you guys have ideas, please send it to your questions or ideas to motopod at motopodcast.com. That will go to all the hosts. Rich and I might look at it, maybe make part of a show out of it. Like I said, we're going to be dark for just a week here as I head off on vacation. Uh, in that time, if you guys want to get a hold of me, you can. It's at MotoRGV in both Instagram and Twitter. Rich is Richard Jowitt on Instagram and Twitter, as I see yep. here. So yep. throw the man a follow, people. He needs it. He deserves it. Also, if you're one of those people who gets into the virtual racing scene, um, Skyler and Jules Chisix, former hosts of the show, have an iRacing series that happens Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. If you need to, if you want to get in on that, um, you can get a hold of Skyler at SkylarV28 on Twitter and also the same handle on Instagram. You could, of course, send it to uh, motopod at motopodcast.com. Skyler will see it. He'll get you the information that you need to be able to join the fun there. Since there's no racing, you might as well do some virtual racing, right, Rich? Absolutely. Got to make make it uh, count when you can. That's right. Alrighty, folks, that's the show. Everybody in the U.S. have a great Thanksgiving, and remember to ride safe.